0: Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're finding out how plants adapt to a changing environment and how we might be able to give them a helping hand so that we can keep feeding the world sustainably in the future. If you're a researcher working in areas of genetics related to food security and sustainability, then you'll want to get yourself along to the next Genetic Society meeting about the genetics of future food production and the Green Revolution 2.0. It's running from the 7th to the 9th of November 2023 at Newcastle University in the UK, and in-person and virtual registration is still open. There are also some grants available for junior researchers as well as a carer's allowance to support attendance at the meeting. So head along to genetics.org.uk slash event or follow the link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com to find out more and to sign up. In recognition of the theme of the meeting I've been chatting to a couple of researchers who are at the cutting edge of understanding how plants respond to a changing environment and how we can help them be fit for the future. First up is Professor Dame Caroline Dean from the John Innes Centre in Norwich, who'll be receiving the Genetic Society's 2023 Mendel Medal at the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting for her outstanding contribution to plant genetics over many years, particularly in understanding how plants sense when winter is coming and respond to the changing seasons. As a teenager, Caroline was more into marine life than plant life, having been inspired by the great undersea explorer Jacques Cousteau, and she initially went to university to study marine biology. But a few plant-based practical lessons persuaded her that the green stuff was worth another look, and she became hooked on plant sciences. Fast forward a couple of years, and another chance encounter set her on the path to the scientific question that would come to dominate her research career. I liked growing plants and I
1: went to California as a postdoc and bought some tulip bulbs. And the person in the shop said to me, put them in the fridge for six weeks before you plant them in the soil. And that intrigued me. And so then I went and read a lot about this. And of course, some plants need winter before they will flower. And that's a way of making sure they align their flowering, which is a very sensitive developmental phase with much better environmental conditions. So different plant species use different strategies to maximise their reproduction, basically. And different parts of the world, different strategies work. Some work better than others. There are two major seasonal cues, photoperiod, the day lengths change, different times of the year, and cold temperature. So exposure to prolonged cold has been observed many, many years ago as a very important cue for flowering. and. Many plants overwinter before they flower, or they actually don't even germinate until the spring, and then they flower very rapidly in the summer. Plants in the desert monitor water. And so depending on where plants are growing, they'll use different environmental cues basically to judge when is the right time, when is the best time to flower.
0: I love that like a chance encounter with some tulips has basically set you on your entire research career to find out how do plants know when winter's coming? How do they deal with it? And what do they do afterwards?
1: Yeah, no, I I think a lot of people tend to follow on something they've started in their postdoc period. But for me, I think it was fantastic to have this just brand new question. And it really has sustained me for 35 years. (laughs) And it's taken us from you know, a very plant-specific question into mechanism, which has taken us into how genes are regulated in different environments, not just for plants, but for everything. What gene expression is monitoring in terms of environmental inputs? Is it an average, for example, for temperature? Everyone assumed it was an average temperature that was driving changes. But we've ended up finding it's the fluctuations, the daily fluctuations that are important as well. But it's also taken us into memory mechanisms because, of course, if you have to decide, have I had the whole of winter, if you're a plant, it's not how am I feeling now, but also what was the temperature last week and the week before and the week before that? You have to register temperature over a prolonged period, and that involves memory mechanisms, which has taken us into these memory mechanisms that are important in the human body as well. How our DNA is packaged in our cells it's the same overall mechanism. It's absolutely remarkable. We can study it in plants and and really see the same mechanisms happening in the human body.
0: I really want to dig into this because when we talk about memory, we think about, you know, having a brain mm. or a, a calendar or something like that. But plants don't have brains in the same way that animals do. So let's dig into a, a bit more about what you're studying, because there's there's a lot of plants in the world, but you're really just focusing on, on one. Tell me about that one.
1: Yes. Well, so, you know, when I started, which was a long time ago, as I say, 35 years, when you looked at plant biology, people worked on many different species because they studied that particular process and that particular species was the best one to study that in. But we couldn't then compare what we are understanding between species very well. And just as I was setting up my lab, the whole Arabidopsis initiative emerged, this multinational initiative, where actually plant biologists decided that we needed a reference plant, a plant where we could not only compare between labs because they'd chosen to work on the same species, but also one where we could affect by mutation, a process that we knew nothing about, and go from a phenotype, you know, how that mutation changes the behavior of the plant, to clone the gene. It was what was called a molecular genetic approach. You could actually clone the gene based on no understanding except how it changed the plant behavior. And the multinational community decided to pick Arabidopsis and to set up resources so that we could easily clone genes that way. And so in 2000, the first eukaryotic plant genome, which was the Arabidopsis genome, was published through this effort of this multinational community. And that has really transformed plant biology. So we can now go in, look at the DNA sequence, understand which genes are controlling which different traits and processes, and compare that widely across, you know, all of the the many thousands of plant biologists across the world who are using Arabidopsis.
0: And so Arabidopsis has this response to winter. It knows when winter's come, it knows when winter's been. Yeah. What do we know about how it's doing that? What are the key players, the genetic players in this plant? How are they working?
1: (laughs) Well, let me just start with one thing. I mean, actually, Arabidopsis was picked because the types of Arabidopsis that most people use didn't need cold because it was rapid cycler you know it was a, the advantage was you could do your genetics very quickly but actually when i went and searched the literature it was clear that there were many types of arabidopsis that did need the cold and there had been a lot of genetics on that in the 50s by a group of arabidopsis researchers that had worked on on the genetics of a whole series of processes but using arabidopsis so i went over to germany and met some of these uh, researchers who gave me all their seed they were just retiring, and they were very delighted. This young person was going to come and carry on their research. What was clear was that when we looked at the different inputs for flowering, whether it be photoperiod or ambient temperature or this long period of cold requirement or fertilisation, actually, they all of those pathways converged on a common set of genes. So that was a quite a eureka moment in the field because before that. Everyone had assumed that were very different mechanisms for plants, you know, whether they needed water in the desert or whether they needed coal, that there's going to be an entirely different molecular mechanism underlying that. But the initial work in Arabidopsis quite quickly took us into the realization that there are many inputs, but they all converge on the same targets. And so that you can see now how evolution would have then picked a different input, and that could have evolved from the same mechanism to give very different responses in different plant species. So that was a really exciting time. Now we then and and others carried on with looking at the winter. And the need for winter and the ability to respond to this winter cold all turned out to be majorly through the regulation of one gene. And this gene makes a protein that basically stops the plant flowering. It's a gene called flowering locus C. And you can sort of visualize it as a a break in, is in the car. If the break's on, the plant won't flower. So if the plant needs winter, when it germinates, it makes a lot of this protein and the plant will not flower. Then slowly, slowly over the long period of winter, that gene is switched off. So then in spring, there's no protein, there's no break, The plants can flower when the day lengths get long and the afternoons get warm and all of the other factors that promote flowering can then actually cause flowering to occur. And so as we got into this mechanism, and it was very interesting that it was one gene made our life much simpler, we could really do a deep dive into the mechanism of how that worked. And so that's taken us into the world of epigenetics in that cold switches the gene off quite quickly. But then what happens is there's a second switch, which is a low probability switch. So it takes a long time for that to occur throughout the whole plant. So the plant then has to go through the whole of winter before it it understands that, yes, spring has come.
0: So this stops your plants getting confused by like a really unusually warm day in February. They don't all suddenly go like, woohoo, lads, it's time to come out.
1: Absolutely right. You know, if if it was just a transcriptional shutdown, then any sort of perturbation in February or whenever, they would get horribly confused. This is a lockdown to prevent the gene reactivating. And if you look at the whole plant, it's halfway through winter, it's a mosaic. In some cells, it's off and in some cells, it's on. And it takes the whole of winter for all of the cells to have the gene switched off.
0: Because this was going to be my question, because last winter, I'm sure we all remember that it was a big, big, deep freeze. I don't remember a winter that cold for many, many years. And then last summer was a very, very hot summer. So this presumably gets some kind of smoothing out of the noise of all these temperatures going up and down throughout the winter and then the summer.
1: What our current work is looking at, actually, is how the plant is dealing with all these fluctuations. And also, you know, as you say, winter is not the same each year. How is it smoothing it out? What we've found is that actually the plant is monitoring many, many aspects of the temperature. And that was a change from thinking, but because people imagine there would be some, I don't know, accumulation of some protein that was accumulating at a certain temperature and accumulated slowly. And so you could imagine then there'll be a threshold over a certain period of time, once enough had accumulated, the plants would be allowed to flower or repressed in our case. But in fact, as we go in and look at what is going on, the plant is is using every facet of that fluctuating temperature. And so all of those facets converge to regulate this gene FLC. So it's smoothing, but it's also being very clever in that some years, There'll be very cold nights, so the cold nights will drive mostly what's going on. Other years, there'll be fluctuations in warm afternoon temperatures, and that will prevent it silencing too quickly. So the plant is really using many aspects of that temperature profile to make sure it's really understanding what's going on out there. It's much smarter than we realized.
0: I'm finding it incredible thinking about my garden and and all the different plants. So is it the same genes and the same mechanisms in, in all these plants just kind of set to go at different times of the year as well? I
1: would say, do you remember I described how the different species converge to regulate a common set of targets? Those common targets will be the same in all of the plant species. As we look at the different inputs, the environmental inputs, you can see... Evolutions use the same sort of mechanism, but often chosen different players to do that with. So that's still an ongoing process, I would say. But a lot of those plants won't be monitoring winter. They'll be monitoring day length. And then they will input those slightly differently. They'll also be monitoring the ambient temperature. And there's a whole series of work going on in many labs trying to understand how plants are really integrating all this information Because, of course, it's hugely important as we're getting such fluctuating climates, plants that have adapted to a certain climate are getting confused. And we've really got to understand the plasticity and yet the robustness to actually be able to, for our crop, for our major crops, make sure the yield doesn't drop too much. And, you know, to really understand what's going on and the implications of changing climate.
0: Yeah, and that, I think, is the really big question. You're talking at a Genetic Society meeting in November, which is all about the genetics of future food production, the green revolution. So where are the really big challenges in in our understanding, particularly relating to your field of understanding how the environment, how seasons are talking to our plants? Like, what, What do we really need to understand?
1: Well, I think the major concepts underlying the mechanism are not what we expected. So if we can really understand the actual temperature inputs, I like to call them antennae of the plant. They've lots of antennae looking at different facets and how they actually converge to regulate this one gene in our case, FLC, but it'll be what the targets are in other plants, especially crops. How those fit together so that in different years, are they going to be Flexible to give us the same silencing, or, or do we perhaps need to breed for particular types which can cope better? We also need to understand really just how conserved the switching mechanism is in different plant species because you know we might want to be tweaking by breeding the kind of requirements for cold and photoperiod to actually make sure in our crops, for example, we have a nice production throughout the year, because what's happened recently, and there's one example you mentioned of deep freeze, for a lot of our vegetables, all the brassicas, the cauliflowers, these are very closely related to Arabidopsis, so you can go quite quickly and look at the, the same mechanism. When there's a deep freeze, actually they all vernalise too fast, and so what happens is that the growers have sown them all in August, and then they plant different varieties so that they have a nice sequential harvest so they can, we can have them in our supermarkets all year round. But of course, if there's a deep freeze then suddenly all of that changes and they all flower rather similarly, so there's a glut for a month and then there's two months where there's no availability. We saw that with tomatoes and peppers this year from Spain. So somehow we have to understand how different varieties are integrating these different signals in different ways, how they've adapted to their different climates and then incorporate that in our production chain so that we have good food supply. And I think understanding the mechanism will really allow shortcuts to actually do that.
0: I guess now we've got some interesting genetic tools as well. I'm thinking about things like CRISPR. You can actually go in and make really specific changes to genes or switch in a gene from one closely related species to another that just tweaks this response to the environment. Is that a possibility?
1: That's absolutely a possibility, and for FLC, you know, the joy of Arabidopsis is that it is adapted to environments from right at the Arctic Circle all the way to the equator. And when we look at what's the basis of that adaptation for vernalization, it's often single nucleotide changes within the FLC gene. So that then absolutely opens up gene editing to create now variation, which will influence the response to cold And what we know in Arabopsis translates exactly to all the vegetables. So, you know, if we know what the targets are in wheat, then absolutely gene editing would be a very straightforward thing to do. And of course, you know, around the world, it's very safe technology. So there are new tools. And going forward, we hopefully will have the understanding to be able to tweak whatever the plant species is in whatever way we want
0: I think it's very exciting now we're in a world of, of really precision gene editing because a lot of the old GM techniques were about, you know, putting things in, adding whole genes and other bits and bobs of DNA. Whereas we're talking now about making very, very specific changes that don't change anything else in the rest of the plants. We're not adding anything artificial and, and hopefully people will understand that that, that is very safe and it, it is tantamount to a natural process of mutational change.
1: Absolutely. That's what we can do with the gene editing. But I think, you know, if you look at the variation between different varieties of plants, many genes move around, many genes have been added. So I think we shouldn't convey the idea if we add something, it's dangerous. It's really not. And there's a lot of understanding there. So I think I would just argue that we shouldn't be too anxious about GM. Gene editing has now been allowed and absolutely, it's precise and it's exactly the same mutation event as in many cases in different genes and natural variants.
0: And we shouldn't, of course, forget that my heroine, Barbara McClintock, was the first person to discover that genes can jump around in a plant, in maize.
1: Absolutely. I think one of the interesting things is how fast plants can adapt to different situations. Her thesis was always that stress would induce the transposons to jump which would then change gene expression all over the genome and give that plant an advantage to survive the stress. She proposed this many, many years ago, but actually when you get to the molecular level, that's exactly right. The molecular understanding now is now endorsing all of the ideas that she had way before any of this molecular data came out. She was remarkable in terms of the imagination of just what was going on at at the DNA level.
0: Yeah. And I'd recommend that our listeners do go and check out our previous episodes about Barbara McClintock and what she did. But just to wrap up, I do want to ask you, are you a keen gardener outside the lab? And when you look at at your garden, do you sort of, do you think about the genes and the molecules or do you just enjoy the, the plants?
1: We have a big garden. I look at it every breakfast. I stare out there because one of the very first things that happens in this silencing in after a frost, is we have induction of a non-coding piece of RNA at this gene, and we called it cool air. And the first night there's a frost, cool air peaks enormously. So every time there's a frost, I go out and sort of look at all these plants and think, I wonder what's been induced. <laughs> so absolutely, I love thinking about it. I think by looking at the plant, it kind of tells you the questions to go and pursue, like my tulip moment, you know. I think... There is so much to understand them about how plants change in response to the environment. They're amazingly plastic, so actually looking at them is, a, is
0: really good. Caroline Dean from the John Innes Centre in Norwich. And if you're interested in finding out a bit more about the classic plant model organism Arabidopsis, check out one of our very earliest episodes from back in February 2019, telling the story of how this humble little cress came to dominate the world of plant sciences. There's a link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzipped.com. Or come and say hi to us over on Twitter, at geneticsunzip. A date for your diary. The Genetics Society's annual Haldane lecture is being given this year by science writer and broadcaster Adam Rutherford on Wednesday the 11th of October at the Royal Institution in London entitled Genetics Standing on the Shoulders of Prejudice, it will be an exploration of the successes and follies of genetics, and how, as we continue to use and celebrate the advances of previous genetic giants like Carl Pearson, Ronald Fisher, and JBS Haldane himself, we frequently fail to acknowledge the toxic political views that informed their work. The Genetic Society Haldane Lecture is awarded to people demonstrating excellence in communicating genetics. And, as you'll know if you've listened to my previous chats with Adam on this podcast, he's got that down to a fine art, and it promises to be an enjoyable, informative, and thought-provoking evening. Tickets are available now from the Royal Institution website. Just follow the link on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. Temperature isn't the only factor affecting how plants grow. Another big one is nutrients. And as we face a growing global population and a fast-changing climate, getting enough food into our food plants is a big issue. Professor Giles Aldroyd is the director of the Crop Science Centre at the University of Cambridge, where he and his team are investigating how plants interact with microbes like bacteria and fungi to extract nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus from the soil. To understand why that's so important, I started by taking a step back and asking him to explain the scale of the challenge when it comes to feeding the world
2: it's a real phenomenal scale of a challenge, because we've got a continuing expanding population. Uh, So we're going to see probably another 5 billion people on the planet, stabilizing somewhere around 12 billion. Associated with that is actually a growth in development as well, so an increase in the the numbers of middle classes. And as people increase their wealth, their diets naturally adapt and change, and they tend to become more meat-eating than they historically were. So you have the combination of more people, but then also more people with greater demands on the food production system. Uh, So that alone, we we have to double food production between now and 2050 to address just what we know is going to happen. But you have to put that into context that over the next 30 years, we're gonna be experiencing some pretty significant climate change. And one of the greatest impacts of climate change is our food production systems. And there are significant parts of the world that are actually gonna become very prone to things like severe droughts, severe heat waves, flooding, that is extraordinarily detrimental to our food production systems. So we need to grow our food production systems at a time when it actually just tackling the consequences of climate change is going to be phenomenally challenging. And I think if you add into that mix a desire to be more sustainable in our food production, such that agriculture has less of an impact on the environment and on greenhouse gas emissions, those three pieces individually, they're already significantly challenging. But meeting the demands of a growing population during a time of climate change and attempting to drive greater sustainability, it really is a a phenomenal challenge that we have to meet to to achieve those goals.
0: Yeah, I'm amazed that you're kind of able to even think and do something about this rather than just hiding at home going like, oh God, oh God, just make it go away.
2: Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think on a personal level, you know, I'm very, very concerned about the the future. What I actually think is that we need to get to 2050. That's the sort of, in my mind anyway, that's the date where, Population starts to stabilize. Um, hopefully we've got greenhouse gases emissions under control. My view is that we, you know, once we get past 2050, start things start to improve. At least some of the pressures come off the system. Now, climate change will be probably continuing and quite severe by that point, but things like the population maybe starts to stabilize and, and, and hopefully we've, we've got some technologies in that just, just helps us tackle some of those challenges. So, I am very concerned about the future, but I'm also a big believer in um, human ingenuity and our ability to solve problems using a variety of approaches. And, and I do think science and technology is one of those approaches, but it alone is not sufficient to, to tackle all of those challenges. So
0: let's home in on the area that you're working in, which is on the issues of things like fertilizers. And this may seem like a really dumb question to start with, but why do we need fertilizer? Why do farmers use fertilizer? And and again, what sort of scale are we talking about here?
2: Yes. So plant nutrition is very, very different to animal nutrition. So we will have eaten a meal and in that meal, it might be a combination of of meat and plant-based products. We break down the proteins into amino acids. We break down the DNA and RNA into nucleic acids. We break down the complex sugars into their more simple sugars. But we stop at that point. So we absorb the amino acids and nucleic acids, the sugars, and then we rebuild, we use those as our building blocks to rebuild our own DNA, our own RNA, our own proteins, and our own carbohydrates. Plants are radically different. They start from the elemental basics. So they start not with an amino acid. They build that amino acid from its building blocks, and that's carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus principally, and then hydrogen and oxygen, which they're getting from water. So those core building blocks, they actually have to capture those nutrients from their environment in their most elemental form. So they get carbon from the atmosphere, they're fixing carbon dioxide from the air using the energy of light. They get nitrogen and phosphorus, which they capture from the soil uh, in the form of reactive forms of those molecules so phosphate, nitrate, or ammonia. And then they use those molecules to build literally from scratch Amino acids, nucleic acids, sugars, etc., which then forms a foundation of the totality of our own nutrition as humans. Now, a, a natural ecosystem, like if you think of a permanent grassland or a woodland, There's a system whereby most there's a slow degradation or a breakdown of plant products. Nutrients are released in that process, but there's plants are capturing those nutrients. A very, very, very slow release system. Very little loss of nutrients in those systems. It's continuously cultivated, so there's always grass, there's always trees growing in that system. Agriculture is radically different because we grow our crop, we harvest that crop off the land, and we take all of that harvest away. Now, in that harvest is nitrogen, is phosphorus, is iron, and other components. And if you don't put those back into the soil, you're actively mining those molecules out of the soil and moving them off to some other place. So over time in agriculture, we deplete these nutrients in the soil. And as a result, our productivity declines. So in, a, in the agricultural system, you have to intentionally return those nutrients back into the system in order to maintain productivity. And that's why farmers use fertilizers.
0: And what kind of scale are we talking about? Because I think about my own garden, you know, hopping along with a little can of miracle Grow. Uh, I don't think we're talking about that kind of scale, are we?
2: If you were in a driving a big tractor through your garden with a tank full of uh, miracle grow, it's not dissimilar. Farmers are doing what you're basically doing with your miracle grow. Miracle grow is exactly that nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium principally in an in, inorganic form. And so it's just a massive version of that. But if you imagine that most farmers, at least the high income parts of the world are covering their fields multiple times with a version of miracle grow across the whole landscape. And then you, you think of that across all the arable areas of high and middle income countries, and it's a massive global impact or global release of in particular reactive nitrogen and phosphorus. And so we as humans have had a huge impact on the global nitrogen cycle. We put as much reactive nitrogen into the system as naturally gets into the system every year. I, I said we have to double food production So if we just take a business as usual, we're going to quadruple the global nitrogen cycle, putting three times as much nitrogen to the system than would naturally be there. So we are having profound impacts on global systems because of that use of fertilizers.
0: I certainly remember seeing things like, you know, lakes that have all turned green, the, the runoff from agricultural land, these fertilizers getting into lakes and rivers and places where they're not needed and then, you know, boosting the growth of algae and all these things. The problem is you want the, the right amount of fertilizer to get your crops to grow, but in the right place. And also this stuff's incredibly expensive as well, I can imagine.
2: Yes. Yeah, so the system's not very efficient, right? As you can you imagine, you're just spraying the whole field with fertilizer only some of it is captured by the crop plants and a significant amount of it is lost into the environment that can be lost as you say in runoff it can also be lost as volatilizing nitrogen conversion into nitrous and nitric oxide is something that bacteria do in the soil. And that is a very potent greenhouse gas. Most natural ecosystems have very low nutrients, particularly aquatic systems, but also most of our terrestrial, natural terrestrial ecosystems, are, a chalk grassland is naturally a low nutrient environment. If you have a lot of agriculture around that chalk grassland, then nitrogen gets into the system. The whole system becomes more nutrient and you lose a lot of the specialized species, which are actually the very reason that chalk grasslands are so important is the ad- locally adapted rare species of plants that are adapted to that environment and we start to lose those species uh, and then in aquatic ecosystems it's really detrimental to have high nutrients in, in these aquatic ecosystems. so agricultural pollutants our nutrient pollutants from agriculture are extremely detrimental to biodiversity and pretty bad news for greenhouse gas uh, emissions as well
0: So clearly we need a better way. What's the way that you're proposing? What are you working on to try and solve this problem?
2: Yeah, so if you look in the natural ecosystems, plants actually get their nutrients mostly through engagement with microorganisms. And that's pretty common across the whole plant kingdom. So most plants are associating with a group of fungi that we call our vascular mycorrhizal fungi. uh, And they are colonizing the root of the plant very extensively and then ramifying out into the soil. And they create an enormous surface area contact with the soil, much more than the plant root alone can do. And these fungi are really good at taking phosphates and nitrates, but also water and micronutrients from the soil and they deliver it to the plant in exchange for carbon. So it's a beneficial interaction. The fungus gets a source of carbon which is delivered as lipids and the plant gets a source of phosphate, nitrates, water from the fungus. So it's a mutually beneficial interaction. Some plants have also learned how to engage with nitrogen fixing bacteria. And that is really useful because there's actually a lot of nitrogen in the air. 70% of the air you're breathing is nitrogen. But the only organisms on the planet that can use that form of nitrogen are bacteria. And some plants, peas and beans, legumes, have learned how to engage with those bacteria and then have, a, as the same with the fungus, a mutually beneficial interaction. The plant gives the bacteria source of carbon, the bacteria give the plant a source of nitrogen. And so in many examples, we can see that actually the plant gets virtually all of their nutrient needs through these beneficial microbial associations. But these are really underutilized in agriculture. I believe that if we can bring these beneficial associations much more into our agricultural systems, we can reduce or even eliminate our dependence on inorganic fertilizers.
0: What's the deal with peas and beans with legumes and things like clovers in there as well, isn't it? Like, why can they get these nitrogen-fixing bugs and other plants can't?
2: So, well, the simplest way to answer that is peas and beans had diverged from cereals evolutionarily before they evolved nitrogen fixation. So on the evolutionary tree, legumes have already diverged from cereals long before they uh, learned how to engage with nitrogen fixing bacteria. So as an evolutionary trick, it happened at one part in the plant kingdom, but that didn't include cereals. Now, that's the simplest explanation. It doesn't say why, right? Why is it that peas and bees do it and cereals never bothered to evolve it? And I think the answer to that, we have a very anthropogenic view of the importance of nitrogen because the way we've structured our agricultural systems is such that we're actively mining the soil for nitrogen, as I said before. There is no natural ecosystem that's like that. All natural ecosystems have this nutrient cycles, which are actually preserving a lot of the nutrients in the system. And so, although in agriculture, nitrogen is a be-all and end-all to productivity, in most natural ecosystems, that's not the case, actually. In contrast, the way we've structured our agricultural systems, it becomes much more important and makes us think, why can't all plants do this? But I think that's an anthropogenic view of the nitrogen cycle rather than a natural view.
0: Uh, there, it, there truly is no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> um, so let's come back to these mycorrhizal fungi. Again, my whole reference point for this is my own garden. I've been planting a load of trees and shrubs and I've got this little packet and a little scoop. And I scoop these little fungi into the hole when I put my shrubs in and they say, this is good. So what are these, these fungi and why aren't farmers just putting them into the field when we do agriculture? Like what, what's the kind of the challenge with harnessing the power of these fungi to use in, in agriculture and in food production?
2: Well, firstly, it's great to hear that you're using the mycorrhizal fungi, and particularly in the context that you said, planting trees and shrubs, that has been demonstrated that's the most effective use of mycorrhizal fungi. And actually, in agriculture, the most effective use is for establishment of orchards, fruit orchards. That's where you really see an impact of of an inoculum of mycorrhizae. Now, actually, mycorrhizae are everywhere. They're present in all soils. So even though you're adding the sachet, it's just increasing the number of mycorrhizae close to the, the plant root, and it helps that plant get established in your garden. And for perennial plants that are gonna, you know, live for a very long time, that's a really useful thing for them. Now, in an arable farming system where we're using annual plants that we're cropping every year, our soils are very low in mycorrhizae. When you add all the nutrients with fertilizers, the plants don't bother engaging with them. So even if we add inoculums, if we're fertilizing, the plant recognizes there's ample nitrogen and phosphorus around. It doesn't bother engaging with the fungus, and it doesn't matter whether you inoculate. So, we actually have to breed or adapt our crop plants. They have to be a little bit rewired in an agricultural system to make the mycorrhizal system work for the crop. And that's not unusual. When you go from a natural plant, you domesticate it to make it better for use in agriculture. And during that domestication, we've not thought about mycorrhizal fungi. Now we're thinking about it because it's a sustainability issue. But we have to think about a domestication of that process in our crop plants to optimize that association in agricultural context.
0: So it isn't literally about just chuck loads of fungus in there and hope they sort it out. We actually need to teach the plants. And, and by teach, I mean some kind of presumably genetic tricks that they can really harness the power of these fungi how, how do we do that what are you trying to figure out to make that work
2: so we have field trials right now where we've got barley plants where we've broken the connection between the plant's perception of nutrients and its decision to engage with the fungus so normally if there's lots of nutrients around as you would normally have in a fertilized field plant recognizes ample nitrogen phosphorus why bother paying for that from the fungus because it's a more expensive way to get it. It's a mutualistic engagement. Plants paying with carbon for nitrogen and phosphorus. If there's unlimited supply in the soil because we fertilized that soil, just take it straight from the soil. So it doesn't bother engaging with the fungus. I mean, that's unfortunate because the fungus is a much more efficient route to take th- those nutrients and means that we would lose less to the environment, probably need to put less on in the first place. So what we've done is broken that connection. So we've stopped the plants limiting their engagement with the fungus to only times when there's no nitrogen and phosphorus around. And we force the plant to engage with the fungus anyway, when there's ample nitrogen and phosphorus around. And that's what we've got in field trials right now. The other thing is that the actual benefits that plant gets from the fungus is variable. There's a genetic component that underpins that actual benefit from mycorrhizal fungi and that segregates in all of our crop plants and it's something that we've never bred for there's not an an intentional breeding for optimizing mycorrhizae so we are trying to force the engagement with the fungus constitutively independent of the nutrient concentration and then bring the genetics in from a breeding perspective that ensures that they get also maximal benefit when they do engage with the fungus
0: so are you achieving these characteristics through breeding or are you bringing in elements of genetic engineering as well?
2: So we, it was, it's a combination of stacking, breeding for optimization of the benefits from the fungus. But with that, currently we use genetic modification to override this nutrient suppression of the engagement with the fungus. Our field trials at the moment are using genetically modified material, but we have actually achieved the same thing in the lab using gene editing. And we're setting up in order to actually test a gene edited approach in the field as well. Now, gene editing doesn't leave foreign DNA in the plant. It achieves a genetic change in the plant that's identical to what you would get through conventional breeding is just a very targeted way. And the recent legislation, the Precision Breeding Bill in the UK, has means that a gene-edited crop is no longer treated like it's genetically modified, is tre- treated like it's a conventionally bred crop. So it's actually preferable for us to have a gene-edited crop. There's more public acceptance of that, It'll be much easier to have impact, it's much cheaper to release a gene-edited product. So the one thing I would say is that although I can you optimize the fungal association with breeding and gene editing. The nitrogen fixing association with the bacteria has got to be genetic modification. I, I have to take genes out of legumes and put them into cereals. So my crop plants of the future will be far more sustainable. They'll be cheaper. I believe they will increase productivity for all the world's farmers, not just high and middle income farmers, but they would be carrying biotechnology traits.
0: So taking all this together, What do you think the future of farming is going to look like if we have these modified plants that are able to engage with the fungus and are able to take more nutrients out of the soil? What can we hope for?
2: So my future for agriculture, my vision of a future for agriculture is one where our crop plants are engaging proactively with the mycorrhizal fungus and we've broadened the engagement with nitrogen-fixing bacteria beyond simply peas and beans, but now move them into many more crop plants, particularly our cereal crops. If we can achieve that, so basically you get all of your nitrogen from the air through the engagement with nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And then you optimize the capture of phosphate from the soil and potassium and other micronutrients. You optimize that through the fungal association. It means we don't need to add reacted nitrogen into the system because the bacteria is doing that for us. And we can minimize the amount of phosphate we're actually putting. You probably always have to put a little bit of phosphate into the system but uh, it can be much less than we're currently doing and done in a way where actually the fungus is really capturing it, so we're not losing it out into the environment. It's a much more efficient capture of the phosphate that we apply. So much less inputs go into the system, way cheaper for the farmer, economically more viable. It's much easier to deliver because you don't have, you don't have to have a huge tractor pumping vast amounts of fertilizers on the fields on a frequent basis and way better for the environment because it's a much more efficient way of getting to those nutrients into the plant, less loss to the environment. So in my view, it's win, 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 win.
0: That's all for now. My thanks to Giles Aldride and also to Caroline Dean. Next time, we'll be exploring the weird world of extra chromosomal DNA, finding out what it is, what it does, and why it's responsible for all sorts of genetic shenanigans. Plus, we discover what happens when nature gets up to a spot of genetic engineering. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, while it still exists, at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it does help more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented by me, Katani. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo is designed by James Mayle. Audio production is by Emma Werner, And our producer is Sally LePage.